Are you selling a little or a lot? Either way, Shopify helps you do your thing. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. It helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. In fact, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And now you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Most of the business owners who listen to No Bullshit Leadership want to go large. What's so cool about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, it gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash leadership or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash leadership now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash leadership. Hey leaders, M here. We're finalizing Marty's 2024 speaking calendar and he still has a few opportunities available. Now you've experienced the impact that Marty has on the podcast, but that's only a tiny fraction of the impact that he has when he delivers an in-person keynote presentation. If you'd like to book Marty to speak at your organization's event, go to martingmore.com or send us an email at hello at martingmore.com and we can chat about how to tailor his powerful message to your leaders to achieve real results. All right, now back to the episode. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more, access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 203 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This week's episode, Defending Against Disruptive Innovation. Capability is everything. We get loads of questions every week about strategy and strategy implementation. Even though these questions are probably more about business than leadership, there are some incredibly strong links, as we'll see in the next 20-odd minutes. There are many leadership lessons that we can bring to bear in the space of competitive strategy. Now, I released a podcast many moons ago called Strategy Isn't Hard, Don't Overcomplicate It. It was episode 85 and it demystified some of the elements of competitive strategy. Hopefully, it made strategy a little more accessible to those of you who don't have much visibility or understanding of what goes on above you in your organization. I'm now going to shift focus to look at disruptive innovation. How do you defend against something that you often can't predict or anticipate? How can you prepare for and respond to disruptive events? Market disruptions don't come very often, but when they do, they can have a devastating effect and severely damage your company's market share and profitability. So today, I'm going to unpick the different types of innovation and look at some sensible strategies for combating disruption in your market. So I'm going to start with a quick revamp of episode 85. Then I'm going to move on to explain the different types of innovation and how they can affect you and your company. And I'll finish by sharing my top five tips for defending against disruptive innovation. So let's get into it. 
I just want to set the scene with a little reboot of episode 85. And it's still worth going back and having a listen to if you haven't already. It's at yourceomental.com forward slash episode 85. Strategy is simply about making the highest order choices for your organisation about where and how it competes. Now the key words here are choices and competes. Strategy doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's always in the context of an industry, a market and a set of competitors. And this is both existing and potential future competitors. It's about setting the highest order objectives that put a beacon on the hill to guide every decision that needs to be made at the lower levels of your organisation. Now, the nature of strategy is long-term, and it needs to describe the principles at a high enough level that it doesn't have to change very often. Events are going to crop up frequently, but if your strategy is formulated at the right level, the principles will be able to withstand these shifts. So I think the minimum horizon for strategic planning should be about five years. But in many cultures, it's much longer. For example, in Japan, it's not unusual for a company to have a 50-year or even a 100-year strategy. Now, I like to separate strategy formulation from the actual execution of strategy. This helps to avoid any confusion between making strategic choices and getting involved in low-level planning tasks. Strategy is brought to life through tactical and operational planning, which both seek to narrow the time window to something a bit more achievable. And that lends itself, obviously, to much more detailed planning. Remember, though, that the choices you make at the strategic level have a much bigger impact than those made at the operational and tactical levels. So getting it right is pretty important. And having the latitude to shift in a fast-changing environment is also crucial. Strategic choices imply high levels of ambiguity and they're based on many assumptions. There are only three big strategic choices. And in actual fact, I think it's really two. They come from Michael E. Porter, the luminary academic who's considered to be the father of modern strategy. His book, entitled Competitive Strategy, released about 40 years ago, is still as relevant today as it was then. The three strategic choices that he outlined are differentiation, cost leadership, and focus, which is a hybrid strategy. And they aren't particularly difficult to understand. Now, I'm going to focus on the first two types, as the focus strategy is really about what markets you target, rather than being the fundamental nature of the products and services you sell. So the first is the differentiation strategy. In this case, it means you have a better product or service than anyone else in the market. Not only that, but you can clearly articulate how and why it's different through your marketing efforts. And most importantly, you can capture additional value because of that difference or uniqueness. You can capture that value from either greater market share or higher profit margins or both. Differentiation implies that what you are selling is not a commodity. For example, commodities are things like sugar, coal, crude oil, wheat, electricity. Do you care what brand of these you buy? Well, generally not, as they're really just inputs for the production of other products. So coal is turned into electricity and steel. Uh, crude oil is refined to produce gasoline or petrol. And sugar, well, judging by my waistline, that seems to be in virtually every food that's produced in the US. The price the commodities are traded at is based purely on supply and demand dynamics. 
So if there's lots of supply around to meet the demand, it's going to be relatively cheap. If there isn't enough supply to meet demand, it's going to be relatively more expensive. So the big increases in the price of oil in 2022 came predominantly as supply constraints forced prices upwards. The Russian war in the Ukraine and the government's green policies that curtailed new supplies from coming online. Now, it doesn't mean to say that commodities can never be differentiated. Occasionally, clever marketing can be used to overcome the nature of a commodity to make it appear differentiated. For example, since when do you care what type of silicon is used for the processing chips inside your computer? But the company Intel ran a super clever marketing campaign in the 80s and 90s to differentiate the computers that used their chips. It was the Intel Inside campaign. And yes, look, there are other examples of pure commodities being differentiated within their category. So for example, although coal is a commodity, it's differentiated in the trading market by calorific value and other quality measures like moisture and ash content. And of course, if you go to a fuel pump, you'll have the choice of petrol or gasoline, which is differentiated by the octane level of the fuel itself. It seems there's often a path to differentiation if you think you can pull it off. The other dominant strategy is cost leadership. Your product isn't materially different to everyone else's, but you've worked out how to deliver it to the customer at a lower cost than your competitors can. This implies scale, efficiency, and continuous improvement. You need to have some advantage in processes or supply chain, or perhaps own a privileged asset in order for this to happen. When we spoke about commodities earlier, electricity is a great example. An electron, once it's generated, is identical, regardless of where it came from. There's no difference between an electron that comes from a coal-fired power station or a wind farm. It's probably the most fungible commodity of all. However, a low-cost strategy can really help to sell a commodity. As an example, CS Energy, the company that I ran, had a cost advantage because it owned a privileged asset, the Kogan Creek Complex. The low-cost nature of the mine and the power station meant that it could produce a megawatt hour of electricity at a lower cost than pretty much anyone else in the market. That gave it a double whammy advantage. First, Kogan Creek is able to make more profit per kilowatt hour of electricity sold than its like-for-like -like competitors. And second, it's going to have a longer useful life because other more expensive power stations will be forced to close earlier when the economics turns against them. Now, interestingly, low cost doesn't necessarily mean that everything is done on a shoestring budget. And in the case of Kogan Creek, for example, the wages paid to staff are really high by any objective measure. The company doesn't scrimp and cut corners on maintenance costs because the highest value can be created when that asset operates reliably over a long period of time. These superior revenues and profit margins dwarf the relative cost of any capital investment decision in pretty much every case. Because the asset has such a fundamental cost advantage, that's the low cost of the extraction of coal from the mine, and the youthful age and efficiency of the power station itself, that drives a massive cost advantage before anything else comes into play. Okay, look, maybe just a quick word on the focus strategy to finish. In the third type of generic strategy, the focus strategy, you take either your differentiated product or service or your lower cost product or service and attack a specific niche market. For example, 
I may have a software application that I want to differentiate, then I choose to focus specifically on small accounting firms of between three and 30 people, say. In my view, the focus strategy lends itself much more to differentiation than it does to low cost, because you're implicitly limiting your opportunity for cost efficiencies that might come through, say, economies of scale. Now let's move on to talk about innovation. There are two basic types of innovations. There are sustaining innovations and there are disruptive innovations. Sustaining innovation is all about continuous improvement. Typically, this innovation comes from adding new product features that improve the product and enable you to charge more for it. Sustaining innovations can also come through greater efficiency, so they can absolutely be a source of competitive advantage, particularly if you're in a low-cost world. Rational, mature companies do sustaining innovation really well. Then there's disruptive innovation, and it comes in two basic forms. There's low-end disruption, and there's new market disruption. Now, low-end disruption is something that satisfies an over-serviced customer. As the large incumbents are improving their products and charging more for them, this creates an opportunity for companies who introduce lower-end products that satisfy the need for the basic customer at a lower price point. So less performance than the all-singing, all-dancing version of a product, but the value lies in a product that can do the same job at a lower cost. A great example of a low-end disruption is the evolution of the steel industry. And this is a key example in Clay Christensen's business masterpiece, The Innovator's Dilemma. The major steel companies in the US had a monopoly share until the mid-1960s. And then these things called mini-mills started making low-end steel, like rebar. This was manufactured from scrap steel, and it was done at a lower cost, both in terms of OPEX and CAPEX. At the time, the big steel companies weren't at all worried about the mini-mills. They were more than happy to surrender the lowest end of the steel value chain because it wasn't worth competing in, and they were making massive margins on the high-end products. But over time, the mini-mills fixed their quality issues, and they chased the big steel companies up the value chain as they learned to make the high-quality steel products. Steel rod and bar, then structural steel, and then sheet steel. And eventually, the impact of this low-end disruption was the undoing of the big steel companies. Bethlehem Steel, one of the 20th century giants, was deregistered in 2003. And US Steel was removed from the S&P 500 index in 2014. Another great example of low-end disruption is wristwatches. Quartz watch technology pushed traditional watchmaking to a different segment in the 1980s. The watch market now is almost completely dominated by cheap watches that can cater to a huge variety of consumers. And that's pushed traditional Swiss watches into a completely different category. These are now considered luxury items. They're more like jewellery than timepieces. And as illogical as it might seem, a $20,000 Breitling doesn't keep time as well as a $20 Casio. But that's not why people buy Breitlings. Swiss watchmakers now serve a different purpose in the luxury goods market. Now, it's really hard to fight low-end disruption. Rational businesses seed the low-end segments, and they don't fight to win low-margin market share. Let's look at the second type of disruptive innovation, new market disruption. 
Think of products like the iPhone. When it was introduced in 2007, there was nothing else like it. It was a completely new category. The iPhone was effectively competing not against other companies, but against non-consumption. This means that no one was using a similar product, and with no established market, they were able to capture it decisively. Apple had what we call first mover advantage. Now, lots of cell phone businesses really struggled when the iPhone was released. For example, Nokia. But also, it disrupted other markets like the market for global positioning systems and the market for digital cameras. <laughs> this had a devastating effect on competitive products. So, Nokia, for example, was the leading manufacturer of cell phones at the time. Its share price dropped like a stone. 95% of the share price was wiped out in only five years. It went from almost $28 to under $1.50 per share. Now, there's a good rule of thumb to think about when deciding on your own strategy. Incumbents generally win on sustaining innovation. New entrants generally win on disruptive innovations. Okay, how do you defend against being disrupted? Do you think companies like Nokia, Kodak and US Steel weren't full of smart people who were schooled in strategy? Do you think they didn't have the resources to prepare against and to fight disruption? This is truly the innovator's dilemma. So my number one tip is to read the two books by Clay Christensen, The Innovator's Dilemma, and the sequel to that, The Innovator's Solution. Let's think about how you might defend against the disruption that affects pretty much every market at some stage or another. I'm going to give you my five top tips, of course, apart from reading those books. Tip number one. Know thyself. What is it that you do really well? What is it that separates you from your competitors? Now, be realistic here. All the platitudes like, we have the best people, look, it's probably not true. Your average employee is going to be pretty much the same quality as your competitor's average employee, unless you choose to do something different, which we'll get to shortly. But think about the hedgehog principle. This was a key part of Jim Collins' classic good to great. A hedgehog is awesome at one thing. When it's threatened, it can curl up and protect itself from predators with its spiny quills. So what's that one huge insight about your business? What is the one thing that you are really good at that's engraved deeply in your fundamental nature that your competitors don't have? You need to know what that is. Tip number two, stay awake. You're off being rational, and there's always going to be someone else who wants to take your market share. The bigger you are, the bigger target you are. And incumbency often breeds laziness. So make sure you don't think about strategy just from the perspective of an annual planning meeting with the board. It's got to be a constant process. This is one of the problems with not working at the right level. While many senior leaders are dipping down, they aren't focusing on their own jobs part of which is to scan the horizon for potential disruptions. Tip number three, understand that all competitive advantages are fleeting. Just try not to believe your own bullshit here. You have an advantage for a reason, but it's not like it's unassailable. On average, market leaders revert to the mean in seven years. It's almost inevitable. So don't ever feel safe and secure just because you have a big market share. 
Remember the cautionary tale of Johnson & Johnson's medical supplies business. J&J had a stranglehold on the production and supply of cardiac stents. Now in 1997, J&J had a 95% market share and it was making gross margins of 80% on that product. It was a license to print money. But their customers weren't happy. And cardiac surgeons are a pretty demanding lot. They wanted stents that had greater flexibility, that came in a variety of lengths, and had greater visibility in x-rays. So when Guidant released a competitive product that solved some of these problems in 1997, it managed to capture a 70% market share in only 45 days. And J&J sales dropped to 8% of market share by the end of 1998. Competitive advantages are fleeting. Tip number four, don't be afraid to cannibalize your own products. Here's a great example. Believe it or not, Kodak had digital camera technology before anyone else. They had invested heavily in research and development to come up with the disruptive innovations that would see it dominate for another 50 years. But they didn't release and develop the technology because they knew it would cannibalize its most profitable product. And that was 35mm film. Now, the decision to put today's windfall profits ahead of tomorrow's strategic advantage, well, this is another example of the dynamics of business and short-termism. It takes real courage and foresight to follow an investment strategy that secures the long-term at the expense of some of the short-term profits. The moral of the story is, though, that if you don't cannibalise your premium market share, one of your competitors will. Final tip, tip number five. Build the capability to be a fast follower. Now, there's a lot said about first mover advantages. Apple, of course, had the first mover advantage with its iPhone. And its initial success made it really hard for its competitors to catch up. But these cases are extremely rare. And even now, Samsung is delivering an iPhone equivalent extremely successfully on the Android platform. So despite the success of the iPhone in the US, Android dominates cell phone market globally with an 87% market share. Sometimes it's great to be a fast follower. First movers? Hell, they take all the risk. They make all the investments. They have to iron out all the bugs in their new product. And first movers have to find, reach, and establish that new market where there is no consumption at present. Your chances of doing this, if you aren't an Apple, are actually really slim. So for every successful first move in the market, there are thousands upon thousands of failures. Sometimes it's just better to be a fast follower, to observe the market closely, and have the capability to respond in kind to any disruptive innovation. So, the answer? Well, you've got to build the one thing that's hard to replicate. Your advantage in people and culture. Now, as I said, all competitive advantages are fleeting but the ones that are hardest to replicate with the longest lifespan are cultural and organisational advantages. And because they're hard to build, they're also hard, if not impossible, to copy. As we know, this comes down to leadership. If you build the high-performing teams that only come from strong leadership, if you focus on delivery of excellence for your customers, if you're driven solely by value creation, if you don't take a purely short-term view of the world, if you hold your people to account for stretching to be their best, if you hold every individual to the minimum acceptable standard of performance, then, and only then, can you have any confidence in your ability to defend against an innovation that you couldn't see coming. 
Do you need any more reasons to work on becoming a strong leader who can build a winning team? All roads lead to Rome, but you just need to decide which road you're going to take. All right, so that brings us to the end of episode 203. Thanks so much for joining us. And remember, at Your CEO Mentor, our purpose is to improve the quality of leaders globally. So please continue to spread the word about the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. I'm really looking forward to next week's episode, The Big Moments. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no bullshit leader. 